Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Devin Dito, along with my co-host, Adrian Guest, and we're back at it again. Uh, we were on a bit of a hiatus, but we are back into our regular routine here at the Black Agenda. It is weekly roundup number 24. Today is December 4th, and uh, like I say, we were on a hiatus. We were with our families and enjoying some turkey and dressing for Thanksgiving, and we hope you had a, a great time safely you know, meeting and and uh, meeting your family. And so we're back at it to end the season on a good note. And so let's get into weekly roundup number 24. We got a lot of news as always. So let's go ahead and get into it. So first up, we're going to go to uh, the daily show with Trevor Noah. So on on Thursday, he kind of caused a stir a little bit. Um, He raised some eyebrows and seemed to claim that Moderna CEO uh, Stephane Bansell is pushing for new COVID vaccines for monetary reasons. Now, Trevor Noah based that on reports so far that the Omicron, uh, Omicron variant symptoms are actually mild. And so he said he called Bansell, the CEO of Moderna. He said, quote, the guy who stands to gain millions from new vaccines. Uh, and then he did a, a take about a new Ferrari that awaits the CEO. Now, what the CEO actually said is that um, the high number of Omicron mutations on the spike protein and its rapid spread indicate the need to modify current vaccines. That's what the CEO of Moderna actually said. Now, Trevor Noah did say um, he wasn't saying that you shouldn't get the vaccine. He was just saying that we may need to wait (laughs) until we actually get more information about the Omicron variant and we don't need to necessarily be be listening to the CEO of Moderna who may not be the most objective in this situation because there definitely is a monetary incentive to be pushing new vac- uh, new COVID vaccines. So, and I don't know, Adrian, you know, he, he de- Trevor Noah definitely caused a stir. People are sensitive to anything that is perceived to be negative about vaccines. So I don't think he said anything wrong. I think he just said the CEO of Moderna may not be the best spokesperson to say we may need, you know, we may need you to take more vaccines next year. And, and that's a fair point. I mean, I think that anyone who's rational could say that the CEO of a vaccine manufacturer has a conflict of interest to say we need to enter, uh, inject, you know, more billions of dollars into an industry that's going to make them profit. Obviously, there's a you know, conflict of interest there. So, you know, Trevor Noah is right in addressing that. But, you know, obviously with there being another variant, um, maybe the CEO Bansell does have a little bit of, you know, uh, no, you know, a little bit of uh, credit to, or a little bit of merit to what he has saying here, because uh, this thing is not going away, listeners. You know, every couple of months we get hit with a new variant. So, um, regardless of whether or not you believe Trevor Noah or Stefan Bansell, go get your shot. You know, we're going to keep telling you that <laughs> every time we report on something COVID, we're going to tell you, go get your shot at the end. So if you hadn't, go get your <laughs> shot. If you hadn't got your booster shot, go get that too. But to take us to another story here, this is about Supreme Court. This is about, you know, Roe v. Wade. State of Mississippi will be arguing that the Supreme Court should allow it and other states to ban abortion after 15 weeks. More specifically, it's asking the court to strike down a lower court's decision blocking its 15-week abortion ban from taking effect. Passed in 2018, Mississippi law in, uh, encountered a legal challenge from Jackson's Women Health Organization. And the law basically has uh, an abortion claim that claims Mississippi law is unconstitutional and should be permanently blocked. Mississippi's 15-week restriction arguably opens an array of possible justifications the justices could look in allowing states to restrict abortion access. For example, the justice could rule that the possibility of fetal pain rather than viability outside the womb justifies state intervention at an early stage in pregnancy. It could also re-examine the state's interest in protecting life both in light of updated scientific knowledge and advancements in medical care. You know, listeners, uh, abortion is one of those things that we talk so often about in politics. And I will always, uh, Devin, be a believer that abortion is one of those things to where, you know, the government shouldn't have so much of a say in it. 
Uh, I get how people feel it because a lot of the um, organizations who give abortions get their money from taxpayers. And people want to say, well, they don't want their tax dollars to go to abortion. And in my mind, I'm just like, you know, if that's the case, maybe we do need to just kick uh, abortions over to the private sector and make it to where the government doesn't persecute clinics that give abortions. Uh, the government doesn't have to help, you know, clinics that give abortions. There's enough wealthy individuals in our nation. There's enough corporations and organizations that could probably fund, you know, the, the cases for abortions. Um, we just need to make sure that there is an, uh, an environment for them to operate. But obviously that's, you know, almost a vacuum to where the government is saying that they don't want their hands in it. And obviously that's not the response that most people want from the government. No, I think that's right. You know, it's such a personal decision between the the woman who is pregnant and, and the man who impregnated her. I mean, that's a, a very personal decision. And I just hate that it has been pushed so much into the public light. And we're having these conversations, like you say, so often, because oftentimes these conversations that we have in our political discussions, they often, they miss the mark. Like we're not talking, we're on the extremes when we talk about abortion and one thing, you know, one side believes they have the moral high ground and that they, you know, sincerely believe that abortion is just killing babies and that the people who do it are just bad people. And, you know, maybe not necessarily necessarily bad people. They just believe it's wrong because they believe it's, you know, morally wrong and you're killing children. And the other side believes that everybody should be able to have an abortion and just, you know, do what you want to do with it. I think there is some room for the middle ground there. Like you say, maybe get it out the public sector. Take the government funding away and just let the public sector handle it. But there are no, you know, let people do what they need to do and make their own decisions in a private matter. It's a very personal decision because it's not easy. No one just wakes up and says, hey, I'm going to go get an abortion today. Like it does not work like that. And I think that's missing from the conversation is what goes into someone wanting to even do that. And then how does that affect them afterwards? Because you got to think about it. We're in the richest, most powerful country in the world. And yet we have so many people who feel as though when they do become pregnant, that they have no other choice but to go have an abortion because of whatever else is going on. Um, of course, there are instances where, you know, in rape and other cases where you want to definitely have, you know, get an abortion. But there are a lot of people who do it simply out of a financial thing. You know, what what would it be like if the government did more to just give more incentives for people to have children and not get the abortion? Like those are the conversations we're not having. It's just more so either you believe it's right or it's wrong. And the conversation is missing the mark. And, you know, states are just on this crusade of like Mississippi and Texas of just, they're just not going to stop until it is, you know, in their eyes, no more children being killed in America, you know, via abortions. And I just think there's just no way we can have an honest conversation if that is how we're going to frame it um, as this crusade to have no more children killed. <laughs> you know, I had a conversation with someone about this and they said that in 50 years, America's going to look back and all the unborn babies are going to be America's greatest sin, not slavery and different things of that nature. And I can, I can get that. I can get behind, you know, people believing that and, and feeling that or whatever, but it's, it's like Devin said, it's such a private personal matter that, you know, we don't need to be dictating it. We just need to back off, you know, let people do what they need to do um, and, 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 and kind of move on. So, I mean, it's, I, I thought that was very interesting whenever I heard someone say that it will, it'll, you know, we'll look back and this will be America's greatest sin. Um, but, you know, every, <laughs> everybody's got a, got an opinion about it. And, it and it all comes down to the fact that people say that, at, you know, it's a baby and we don't need to be killing it. But like Devin said, I've always pointed to the fact that if, if the argument is we don't want people to kill babies, we have to incentivize them to have that child. You know, what if you 
I don't know, gave UBI to every pregnant mom or you made sure that they never, while they were pregnant, they didn't have to worry about, you know, you know, maternity. Well, some, most, most people have health insurance. They don't have to worry about maternity visits, but some people don't, or maybe if you fix the adoption process so that when that mom is, you know, have that child right at day one, she knows who's going to, you know, adopt her child. I mean, there are so many different ways we can make sure that moms don't have abortions, but we don't talk about that. We don't. And I think that's the problem. You know, I think we, we need to change the conversation, but it's hard. And, you know, we'll, we'll definitely keep you updated as far as what happens with the Supreme Court. And, and understand, too, it's not lost on us that we're two men talking about abortion. You know, we don't get we don't we can't go and have an abortion. This is something that women have to deal with every day. So we're, it's not lost on us that we're two men discussing this. But, you know, I do think that, you know, it's it's something that everybody has an opinion on and we're just giving our take on it. And so, um, like I say, we'll definitely keep you updated as far as, you know, what what's going to happen with the case uh, with the Supreme Court. So we'll move on from there. We'll go from the Supreme Court and go up to Minnesota, who is, uh, they're looking to take a, a groundbreaking step in the right direction to prevent and solve cases of missing and or murdered uh, black women and girls. And so a government funded group called the Task Force on Missing and Murdered African-American Women gathered for the first time in the state earlier this week. Uh, the task force of its the first task force of its kind to be uh, it is the first task force of its kind to be established within the United States. Um, the public official hopes the team will be able to tackle the vast array of issues that contribute to the disproportionate amount of violence towards black women, which includes human trafficking, sexual exploitation and urban violence. And this is according to the Minnesota Public Radio News. And so I'm glad to see that happening, Adrian. Of course, we know that's a, a big push that we're seeing. I think there's a show on HBO Max now talking about the missing and uh, I believe it's called Missing and Murdered. Uh, black uh, uh, black people who are missing and murdered. I believe that's the title of the show. Uh, but that's a, a big push right now. So glad to see Minnesota focusing on that to try to, uh, you know, definitely try to fix that. Yeah, it is. It's one of those things to where I was watching uh, the Netflix show You, and they were talking about white woman syndrome whenever, yeah. you know, I guess, spoiler alert, but, you know, there's a white woman that goes missing or whatever. <laughs> uh, but they were talking about that and how black women do not get the same media coverage and same attention. And this is definitely the case here. I'm so glad to see Minnesota is doing some great things. Um, take you to another story. This is something, you know, just to kind of let you know, Africa's really behind when it comes to vaccinations. And it's sad because we are, you know, Devin mentioned that new Omicron variant. And if you aren't aware of this, listeners, um, just more than 10% of people in Africa have received at least one dose of COVID, uh, COVID vaccine. And like I said, that's just 10%, you know, versus you go to North America where we live, you know, you got 64%. You go to Europe, you got 62%. The World Health Organization officials have attributed the vaccination gaps to unequal distribution of vaccines, noting that wealthier nations have bought enough doses to offer booster shots, while poorer countries have struggled to get their first doses. And we're seeing that because here in America, we're talking about getting boosters. And in Africa, you've got you know, only 10% of the population who've received even one dose of COVID vaccine. Really, really sad story. And, you know, we don't give China a lot of positive media attention, but I did see where uh, China's leader, Xi Jinping, uh, has made a pledge to give Africa one billion vaccines. Uh, also said they're going to be sending 1,500 health experts to the continent as well. So, Devin, you know, I think the United States donated about 250 million vaccines recently to Africa. Um, but we talked about this, I think, with the doctor um, in our maybe last season about vaccine hoarding. Uh, a lot of wealthier nations are doing that, and a lot of poor nations are getting left behind. And, I mean, Africa is not one nation. It's made up of a bunch of nations, a continent. And that continent has only seen 10% vaccination versus us at 64 So, I mean, call it what you want to, but 
there definitely needs to be some help right here because obviously Africa's struggling. No, definitely. I mean, that's part of the issue, you know, with the way the pandemic kind of played out where you saw the more advanced countries immediately starting research and vaccines and it was available to us. Like you really have to take a step back sometimes and, you know, appreciate how, how lucky we were to be here in America where we got the vaccine was available before the end of 2020, you know, like that was, and it's, you know, unthinkable for developed countries and nations on the continent of Africa and other places who probably hadn't even done the research on vaccines yet. And so we were able to go and get it for free. Schedule an appointment on your phone. You got two doses and now we got boosters. Like we have a very easy here and we're having to convince people to take it. <laughs> so, and in places like Africa, you know, the continent of Africa and the countries there just don't have it available really at all. It's scarce. And so that just shows you just the difference between where we are here and what they are dealing with over there. It is a much different monster. And so I think if we had a better appreciation of how good we have it here, we would definitely, you know, be able to understand the, the, the struggle that Africa is having and trying to get people vaccinated and just getting access to the resources that the more advanced countries have. And kudos to China for stepping in. I tell you, keep your eye on China because China's done a lot for the continent of Africa. They're building that um, belt and line road or something like that. It's some huge infrastructure project that they're doing uh, in Africa. They've they already have a lot of investments, and then you see they're pledging a billion vaccines, sending fifteen hundred health experts. That's a big deal, and so just it just seems like in some way China is sort of taking, you know, the the taking the position that the United States usually steps into in being the world's leader, and so just something to keep an eye on. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I I, I think that that's a good point. And it was only comment I was going to have. It just makes me think about how a lot of people just say here in America, we're just too privileged with stuff to where we do take so much for granted compared to other developed nations. It's like, you know, we throw out our food and we complain about our clothes and don't want to get our vaccines. But you got places like Africa where they don't have those sorts of things and people would just gladly take the scraps off your table, the clothes off your backs and any vaccine. So, I mean, it's just like, it's, it's different. Even and even with the um, Ebola um, epidemic, remember when it came here, it did not take, but I would say what a few months and we had a vaccine for it, like, or a cure. Like, and Ebola had been raging in Africa for, I think years before this, before I got here in America and then all of a sudden we get a, a cure for it. Like that's just like, come on guys. Like that's the type of hoarding and things we're talking about. Wealthier countries have the fixes for a lot of the issues that other countries have. We just don't want to share it and bring the rest of the world with us. So we'll move on to our next story. Our very last story here. Uh, this is our feel good here. So, uh, this is about uh, Kevin Strickland, who was um, exonerated after 43 years in prison. And so uh, Mr. Strickland now is a millionaire, I guess you could say. Uh, the general public has donated more than a, a $1.3 million to the recently exonerated Kansas City, Missouri man who spent more than four decades in prison for a crime he did not commit. Uh, Kevin Strickland, who is 62, had 50 years to life in prison uh, sentence for a triple homicide. He had that sentence set aside by a, a Missouri judge on Tuesday after evidence presented by attorneys with the Kansas City-based uh, Midwest Innocence Project proved that he didn't commit the crime. And in May, the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office agreed to support Strickland's exoneration after reviewing the new evidence, which was uncovered by his lawyers. So Glad and absolutely glad a, a right a wrong was righted, and he's going to be able to have you know one point three million dollars because I believe too Adrian he does not you don't get any uh, you know reparations or any payments from Missouri because you were wrongly convicted so he didn't have any money and they weren't going to give any and so the public stepped in 
And so that just kind of restores your faith in humanity a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think the only way you get money is if you sue and you win. Yeah. And I don't think they just give you some just because, oh, we messed up and we convicted you <laughs> falsely. I don't think you get money just because of that. No, you don't. But now he's got $1.3 million to, to you know live the rest of his life with. So I'm um, glad to see that happen. So we're going to take our first break. And when we come back, we're going to get into some more news. We're talking about Stacey Abrams. She's back in the news. We'll talk about Netflix. And we'll give you a little update about the Omicron variant here in America. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda Podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share, and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So let's get into our second segment here. So we're going to start with our quick updates. We got three of them for you. Uh, so first up, we're going to be, I, I mentioned Stacey Abrams before the break, but she has announced that she is going to be running for governor of Georgia again. This is her second time. Uh, she ran back in 2018 and lost, but she says she's going to run again in 2022. And if she wins, uh, Stacey Abrams would be the, the first black female governor in the country. So it would be a history making uh, election if she does go on to win. Uh, for our second uh, update here, we do have, so we were talking about COVID before the break. We do have our first case of the Omicron variant has been confirmed here in California. Um, in a briefing, Dr. Anthony Fauci said the case was an individual who had actually traveled to South, traveled from South Africa on November 22nd, and then they tested positive on November 29th. And they say the individual is self-quarantining and close contacts have tested negative so far. Um and we'll keep you updated with that story. Our last update here is uh, a, a tragic story coming out of Los Angeles. Here, so a man has been a man has been arrested in the fatal shooting of Jacqueline Avant. As the Grio uh, previously reported, Jacqueline is the wife of legendary music executive Clarence Avant. Uh, she was shot and killed in a home invasion robbery on Tuesday, and on Thursday, Beverly Hills police announced that a 29 year old man. Um, Ariel Maynard of Los Angeles has been arrested in connection with her murder. So hopefully she, you know, they get some justice there. But what a tragic story. Um, you know, Agent, I, I've heard of Clarence Avant before, but just an awful story. But I'm glad they caught, they caught the person who did it. Yeah, Devin, thanks for those updates. Some good stuff in there with Stacey Abrams, some bad stuff in there with Miss Avant, along with the uh, Omicron case in California. Um, you know, listeners, yeah, a lot, a lot of stuff going on in our world right now. So make sure you stay in the loop. That's what our show is about, making sure you know what's going on. And speaking about some other stuff going on, uh, just to let you know some stuff about Netflix. Um, they made a pledge early in the year, and now they're actually doing it um, and committing to addressing systemic racism by supporting black communities. Uh, last year, they said that they were going to place 2% of their holdings with black businesses, and they actually have started to do that. Um, they've moved about $100 million to six financial institutions. One of them we actually had on our show, uh, Kevin yeah. Coley, the CEO of One United Bank, along with uh, five other institutions. They're, they're getting some of that money. Um, interestingly, uh, listeners, you know, 2%, you know, Dev and I, we kind of talked about that. When you look at 2% of Netflix and a hundred million dollars, you know, the hundred million dollars sounds like a lot, but then when you look at, oh, that's only 2%, it's like, oh, okay, that's not a whole lot, but <laughs> it is a drop in the bucket. It is a step in the right direction. It is something that we love to see in our community when people get back to us. So hats off to Netflix for keeping their promises. Um, hope we can continue to see them doing more. Yeah, I love it. And I'm glad to see Hope Credit Union made the, the list because I think they're in Mississippi. So just for our people who are in Mississippi, if you do You're bank right. with Hope Credit Union, you know, check them out because they are definitely handling some of uh, Netflix's money there. <laughs> but we'll move on to our next story here. We're going to go to a, a study here. So it was the, legi the largest study of its kind to date. 
where researchers created fictitious renters with names more often associated with white, African-American, or Hispanic identities. And they then tracked more than 25,000 interactions between those people and over 8,000 property managers in the 50 largest U.S. cities. And so what they found was that renters with white-sounding names received a 60% response rate compared to 54% and 57% response rate for those with African-American or Hispanic identities. And this is uh, a study done by the National Bureau of Economic Research. And the study actually found that most uh, that the most discrimination for Black renters in Chicago, uh, Los Angeles, and Louisville, and then for Latinos, it was in Louisville, Houston, and surprisingly, Providence, Rhode Island is where they face the strongest constraints. And so, Adrian, I think this is, you know, more confirmation that there is sort of a bias when you, you know, see the name on the application or see the name on the resume. People make, you know, assumptions and they may attach a sigma to it where if you have a name that's spelled a certain way, well, you could say, well, that's probably a black person. I may not necessarily give them you know, the same consideration as I will with someone who has a, a, a white sounding name like a John or an Amy. Um, I will say, too, the disparity is not not huge. It was 60 percent response rate for white names, but 54 percent and 57 percent uh, for African-American and Hispanic. But nonetheless, there is it, you know, it does look like there is some disparity there with who gets a call back or who gets a reply, you know, from landlords. It it's something that is not only in housing. I mean, you know, whenever I was in undergrad, one of the things we studied in labor economics was the fact that this happens in, in hiring. Um, you know, if you put white sounding names versus black sounding names versus Hispanic sounding names on a resume, there's often, you know, different callback, you know, rates. And and this isn't to say that you, you know, like like Devin is pointing out, you know, you know, there's only a six and three, you know, six percent difference from African Americans, three percent difference from Hispanics to whites, but it just shows that these um, disparities exist, and and these are on small scales. I mean, these are you know just out of you know eighty four hundred you know property managers. Uh, I mean, if if we actually surveyed the entire you know um, you know population in the United States of property managers you know, this response rate could probably, you know, be very different. Um, so it's an interesting story, Devin, to say the least. Um, not anything abnormal than what you would expect, um, because we live in a society, even though I've, you know, was in a three-hour conversation where the person wanted to deny that race is a, is a, <laughs> is a part of the conversation. You, you can't live in America and say that race is not a part of the conversation because in everything that we see, whether it's the way we fund our schools, um, the, the way crime is, you know, ridden our communities and different things like that. I mean, there's so much a lot that, that happens as a result of race here in America. No, I, I think you're right. And, you know, I, I think you're right. And I don't want to make too much out of it. You know, I don't, I don't want to sound the alarm. It's like, but you like kind of like Dr. I think it's Dr. William Gale said, Race is kind of one of those things where you start digging into it and you always find something that confirms your assumptions that there is a disparity between how certain races are, uh, you know, treated. And it's like, if you always find a disparity that negatively works against a certain group, whether the law or the organization is not racist on its face, there's something else going on. So it's like, if African-Americans are always getting less callbacks for jobs, but also less callbacks for, you know, rental applications and less callbacks or or less approvals for home loans and less approvals for car loans. Like what's going on here? Like that's where I'm like, okay, it may be a one-off here, but when you start to see a disparity in everything that's working against a certain group, that shouldn't, it's not saying that the whole system is racist, but there's something else going on where we're not, there's more work to be done to correct some of these disparities or at least shrink the gaps at least. 
um, because these things do have real, you know, real world uh, effects and they, they can show up in a lot of different ways. And so just wanted to make sure we, you know, we're not here to be always talking about race, but it seems like when you go looking for it, you always find something that confirms what you're thinking. Absolutely. And even though we're not here to talk about race, we are here to be a black centric show. <laughs> and and in America, um, whenever you talk about black news, unfortunately, it often points to racial issues because <laughs> unfortunately, <Yes. laughs> we have been dealing with those since we got here in 1619. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move off of that and we'll go to something else. Uh, we'll go to school shootings, which aren't any better, but it seems to be um, an American trend because you don't see uh, a lot of these happening in other countries. But authorities are searching for the parents of a suspect in the shooting at Oxford High School in Oxford, Michigan. According to USA Today, James and Jennifer Crumley were charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter by prosecutors as they were accused of purchasing the firearm that their son um, used in a school shooting that they purchased for their son as a Christmas gift. Ethan Crumley, who is their 15-year-old son, is accused of shooting and killing four students and injuring seven others at Oxford High School. The parents were scheduled to be arranged on December 3rd, but were not in custody, according to USA Today. The couple were discovered to have left town briefly, although the family lawyers claim that they left for their safety and will be returning. That's an interesting story, Deb and I. You know, I'm not a person that believes in a lot of guns. Um, I think that the fewer guns we have in our society, the better. The more people who um, leave them alone, probably the better. Um, You probably shouldn't be buying guns and stuff like that for your 15-year-old kid. Um, That's one of those things that you buy and you say, I'm going to keep and lock up and we're only going to use it for hunting. Uh, I'm not even going to tell you where it is kind of situation because, you know, if I'm 15, I probably don't really need to own a gun in the first place. No, I mean, that's that's part of the issue here with this. And like you say, this is an American phenomenon. You don't see this happening in other countries like that. So you really have to question what's going on um, here here in the U.S. But we'll, of course, keep you updated if um, authorities actually do end up being able to apprehend the crumblies because it looks like they are still on the run. Uh, but we'll move on from that story. We're going to go down to Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis is now uh, proposing a Florida civilian military force that he would control. So uh, Governor DeSantis on Thursday proposed reestablishing the Florida State Guard, which is a civilian military force initially created during World War II, that would be under his command. And he said this civilian force would, quote, not be encumbered by the federal government, end quote, adding that it would allow him the flexibility the flexibility and the ability needed to respond to our events in our state in the most effective way possible. Uh, Florida law also allows uh, D- Governor DeSantis to deploy a military force to assist the civil authorities in maintaining law and order including protest. And so Democrats opposed the idea. A gubernatorial challenger, uh, Charlie Crist, uh, who's a Democrat, tweeted that no governor, quote, should have his own hand-picked secret police. And so, you know, Adrian, when I saw this story and saw the headline and, and read the story, I was like, this is a direct shot in response to what we saw happen last year. So what you're seeing is a, a very... You know, it's not racist on its face, but this is a response to what happened last year and to what I believe what Kyle Rittenhouse got away with in Kenosha with the idea that people are now going to be able to go off and protect, you know, businesses or other places who are experiencing riots or protests when they perceive that the government is not doing its job. You know, that's what a lot of people say that Kyle Rittenhouse was doing. And so they say, well, if the, you know, the local police aren't going to step in and stop it, well, then the civilians are going to do it. And the the argument against that was that, well, they're not the police. They're not law enforcement. Well, if you put them under the umbrella of a civilian military force at the, you know, at the orders of the governor, then they are law enforcement. 
and they can be, you know, uh, they can respond immediately is what they're looking for. So I, this is an absolute response to last year. And I guarantee you, if this does actually happen, other Republican governors will probably follow suit so that when a protest happens, they can go and, you know, and, and send out their civilian military force to say, hey, we need you to go to protect businesses in, you know, XYZ city. And that's what they're going to do. And they have the backing of the, you know, the federal government or not the federal government, but the state government. Yeah, I could see this being a slippery slope. Um, I I don't know. It's, you know, the you know, law enforcement, I guess, state law enforcement, you know, answers to the governor, maybe indirectly through a bunch of different channels and things like that. And I mean, there are laws in place that that they have to answer to and adhere to, to where you, you don't necessarily need a secondary force to, to, to interfere with what they're doing or to supersede them or to assist them. I mean, because, you know, we already have that, you know, if, if a governor feels that their local law enforcement is not enough, you call the national guard. You, you, I mean, you, you don't have to create another military force. You know, we already, we, we already have a civilian military force for that and you don't need it on mm-hmm. you. I mean, Florida's got a national guard. I don't, I don't know why he's having to reestablish state guard i mean there's a you know there's a national guard that florida's you know that gets or whatever i mean it's it's just insane and i definitely think uh devin you're absolutely right to say that it is a response to what happened last year um, because you have police chiefs and superintendent of the police who want to seem nonpartisan and want to stay out of these protests and issues like that and just make sure that businesses aren't being looted and rioted but you've got a lot of political officials who want to stop the riots because they don't believe that black lives matters and black lives can be able to protest and whatever the case might be. So slippery slope to say the least, Devin, I hope that um, Florida is able to stop this. Uh, I hope that um, challenger Rep- uh, representative Charlie Chris is able to defeat DeSantis um, like I said, I'm I'm not for anybody who has an R by their name, and I don't like to feel that way about party lines. But if you're a Republican, I just don't support you, um, especially <laughs> when you're talking like this. Maybe you could be a Mitt Romney, but even still, I don't like him because he doesn't have much of a backbone. But um, to end our uh, segment here, um, this is just another feel-good story. Isaiah, two-year-old from Ghana. Uh, He's getting a lot of international attention. Uh, He's a child prodigy, knows at least four different languages. Uh, He started at an age of, looks like he's only five months when he started, and his mother noticed he was really, really gifted. Looks like uh, using YouTube, he was able to learn Japanese, among other things, and was able to count up to 40 in Japanese in less than 24 hours. And again, this is when he was five months. So uh, this guy is going to be smart growing up. He's two years now. Uh, can count in at least four different languages. Who knows what else he's going to do? He can do complex math problems as, as well. So um, parents, get your kids, sit them down in front of YouTube, not to watch cartoons, but maybe play some some counting stuff or <laughs> something else and, you know, instead of cartoons. But we're going to let you go ahead and get another break, listeners. We got some funny quick hits for you, so make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to our scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash black agenda pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back here. Let's get into our quick hits. For my first quick hit, I saw where Will Smith uh, did something very interesting. I would definitely say, Devin, I wouldn't do this with my grandmother, even if you paid me money. But uh, Will Smith, you know, everybody knows him now with King Richard. Uh, His latest taboo admission is that he once showed one of his movie stars wife sex scenes to his Christian grandmother right before she and Jada met for the first time. 
And this is what uh, Will was saying. My grandmother, Gigi, is all the way down with Christ. Because she didn't know who Jada was, I put on a movie of hers and worked out that by the time Jada arrived, my grandmother would be watching the love scene. It appears Jada did not think the prank was funny, according to Smith, who told Graham Norton that his wife looked him upside later that that took him outside, took him aside later that night and asked him what he was thinking while pulling such a stunt. Um, again, Devin, I would not um, show my grandmother uh, um, any you know movie where my partner's having sex with somebody, especially if they're you know all the way down with Jesus, even if they're a little uh, down with Jesus, even if they don't know Jesus, I wouldn't show my grandmother <laughs> my partner sex scene. No, that had to have been like cringeworthy or awkward. <laughs> Will Smith got an interesting uh, sense of humor, I guess. <laughs> I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have definitely done that. Apparently, not. He's got an interesting sense of humor, and like uh, in this article, he was talking about some of his other like. I don't know if it's. I don't, I don't remember if it said he was necessarily a sex addict, but apparently, he went through a, a very rough time with sex to where. Even whenever he would think of an orgasm, it would make him like almost want to gag and vomit because oh, he wow. was just having it so much. I guess I don't know. Never been in that position. Nope not not like Will. I don't have that problem. <laughs> but we'll move on to our next quick hit here. Um, so our next one is about a reindeer burglar that is wanted by New Hampshire police, and so. Police have released a sketch of an antlered suspect wanted wanted in connection with the burglary at a New Hampshire high school. Uh, police said they responded to a report of a broken window at the school and were surprised to discover a 10-point buck inside the school lobby. And so officers called for backup and firefighters arrived to help capture the hefty interloper. And they said, quote, as emergency personnel gained entry, the suspect escaped as he crashed through a second window and was last seen running down Maple Street. An officer pursued the suspect, but the four-legged perp was apparently too swift. Um, in the distance, a voice could be heard yelling, On Dancer! And in the blink of an eye, the suspect was gone, police said. And so officers uh, found a five-point deer antler at the scene of the crime and quipped that they would be sending it to a crime lab to check for DNA. <laughs> And police believe that the buck is part of an organized crime group breaking into buildings in New Hampshire. So if you're in New Hampshire, make sure you look out for this crime ring of, uh, you know, 10 point bucks who may be breaking into different places. Um, they are on the lookout. So if you see them, make sure you report it to the police so they can get them captured. <laughs> <laughs> this is funny. It, you know, makes me think somebody is probably training bucks to like be a part of their secret task force to you know, do burglary or something like that because you know, can't send bucks to prison. But um, that's good. I'm glad you found that one. Um, little disclaimer, listeners. Um, this next quick hit, it's not supposed to be funny. Um, it's more or less supposed to be uh, if you're in a church and somebody is preaching like this, you need to call them out. You probably should get them fired and removed too. But after nine years of service as senior pastor of Grand Concourse Seventh-day Adventist uh, Church in the Bronx, man, that's a long title for a church. Um, Bernard Robinson's stint has ceased after he preached a sermon approving of marital rape. According to her religious news service, Robinson preached about wife submission to husbands uh, in November 13th. In a short snippet of his sermon, Robert said, or Robinson said, in this manner, and the quote, this is this is from the pastor. In this manner of submission, I want you to know up front, ladies, that once you get married, you are no longer your own. You are your husband's. He said, pausing for a moment. You understand what I'm saying? I emphasize that because I saw in court the other day on TV where a lady sued her husband for rape. And I would say to you, gentlemen, the best person to rape is your wife. But then it has become legalized. So again, this is what the pastor saying that it is okay to rape your wife because wives have to submit to their husbands, which is in the Bible as far as the wife's submission, but not the rape part. 
Robinson was placed on administrative leave on Tuesday. Um, this was the week of Thanksgiving. And then later on, uh, looks like they kind of did some things on, on, on the following day, uh, that Wednesday, it was announced Robinson had resigned. Uh, and then, of course, they found someone else to replace him. So, um, Devin, whenever I saw that, I was like, I mean, I was in ministry and I've, I probably have said some some crazy things before, maybe made like a mistake that I have to backtrack. Probably can't think of too many, but don't think I've ever said or ever heard anybody say something as absurd as it's okay to rape your wife because y'all are married and she's got to submit to you. <laughs> just the fact that he let the words come out of his mouth is just ridiculous. It's not funny, but it's just absurd and ridiculous. So he's getting what he's, you know, Mr. Robinson, wherever you are, you are getting what you deserve, sir. You, you can't say no. Nobody's going to follow you on that. I don't know what part of the Bible he's looking at or what book he's teaching from. <laughs> That's not going to work. Um, My thing is, I just, I would love to know, like, what, what did the men in the church say? Like, what, like, what was, what going was the on? reaction? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd love to see the live reaction of when he, he dropped that on him. I guess he was like, yeah, I, got, I really got him today. It's like, no, buddy. <laughs> The, the one man that just actually says amen to that, you know. <laughs> we might need to get him out to church, too. <laughs> no. Uh, but, well, yeah, well, we'll move on to our next story here. This is just as absurd um, here, but we're going to a Delta flight. So things got really weird. They got apparently they got weird on a recent Delta Airlines flight from Syracuse to Atlanta. When a woman allegedly started breastfeeding a cat <laughs> to the horror of fellow passengers <laughs> and the crew. <laughs> so a flight attendant sent a message from the aircraft communications addressing and reporting system on the jet while in flight to alert the crew on the ground that the person sitting in seat, quote, A13 is breastfeeding a cat <laughs> and will not put the cat back in its carrier when the flight attendant requested it. Uh, the message further requested that Delta's red coat team, which is a special group dubbed customer service experts by the airline, greet the woman upon the flight's arrival in Atlanta. Uh, that same flight attendant then later took to social media to provide more details of the incident where she recalled that the woman had one of those hairless cats swaddled up in a blanket so it looked like a baby. Her shirt was up and she was trying to get the cat to latch. And she wouldn't put the cat back in the carrier. The flight attendant also added that the cat was, quote, screaming for its life. So what a... <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying to... The visual is just not working for me. I just... I can't see a cat and the whiskers and somebody trying to breastfeed and then getting into... I just... I can't put those two things together. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sorry, uh, sorry, listeners. I try not to, you know, overindulge in laughter while we're trying to deliver you some quick hits. But this one's, this one's for the books for sure. Um, I, I mean, I get everybody having like a right to do whatever they want. I get like how you know animals can be like your children. Like I, because I've had dogs I and mean, I get it, but. I've never tried. To, I mean, I guess I can't breastfeed, but I would never try to do it. Um, I mean, come on, lady. Like, like, what are you thinking? I mean, people already have a hard enough time, you know, you know, seeing children be breastfed in public. Less known, you trying to breastfeed a cat? Like, sorry, <laughs> it's just. Oh my goodness. Sorry, folks. Yeah, that's like you said, that's one for the books. If we ever did a, a, a mashup of our best quick kids, that's that's going on the list. And speaking of mashup, uh, now we're going to talk <laughs> about mashed potatoes because um, apparently yeah. residents of <laughs> I know good segue uh, residents of a neighborhood in Jackson, Mississippi, are confused by the bowls of mashed potatoes they're finding on their cars, porches, and mailboxes. Yeah, I know, Devin. It's I kind of made that same face when I saw this. Uh, resident Jordan Lewis 
described the Bellhaven neighborhood as a quirky one with residents decorating road signs and putting Christmas trees in potholes, but now they're discovering that people are decorating them with bowls of mashed potatoes. Some residents fear that there's a more sinister message behind these potatoes. <laughs> it's unclear if anyone has eaten the potatoes and news <laughs> and news outlets report residents haven't alerted law enforcement. Uh, resident March, uh, resident Michaela Lynn says some of the potato finders have connections to a local private Christian university, which may be a clue. I guess they're blaming it on the Christians. I don't know. Some people were thinking maybe the mashed potatoes were poisoned to kill animals, uh, noting that almost that noting that, you know, this is a quote from somebody noting that they almost stepped into a bowl on Tuesday. So I didn't taste it. I have a three second rule, so I didn't touch it. But some people were worried. I'm glad this person didn't touch it because of his three second rule and not because of the fact that they're just <laughs> a random bowl of mashed potatoes that he just found on the porch. Like that's, you know, that's it's science like, at work. <laughs> Gotta find that's that is bizarre. I don't know what I would do if I came outside and saw a bowl of mashed potatoes on my I'm like, who takes the time to make a bowl of mashed potatoes? Like, first off, how much time do you have? Yeah, I mean, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe they're making instant mashed potatoes, and that's why they're just mass-producing a bunch of them and just <laughs> leaving them in people's cars and porches and mailboxes. And What are you doing? I'm just wondering, like, who, who's the person that thought about eating them? Like, nobody, it's, you know, no one's eating them yet, but, you know, some oh, people, I, somebody, I believe somebody's trying it. Somebody's at least tried a spoonful just to be like, is it at least good? Right. Like if they're good garlic mashed potatoes, man, I don't know. You know, it's like <laughs> Yeah, you know somebody's been hungry. Or you know that there's probably some homeless people. Somebody somebody's yeah, somebody's tasted it at least. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know. We'll we'll keep you updated on the potato ma- uh, mashed potato mystery uh up in Jackson. So uh, we'll move on to our, our last story here. Um, this is probably a, another good one, but uh, people on the internet can't seem to contain themselves over a seemingly innocuous detail from a serious news update regarding the well-being of Chinese Olympic tennis athlete uh, Pang Shui. We brought you this story on our last quick hit, well, not quick hit, but weekly roundup. Um, it all so all the hoopla and and everything that's going on the internet all seems to stem from a post made by CNN on Twitter on Wednesday, declaring that, quote, longtime International Olympic Committee member Dick Pound has said that the unanimous conclusion by those on a call with Chinese star Peng Shui is that she is fine. And so you heard his name. His name is actually Dick Pound. That's his real government name. And so people were freaking out about Dick Pound. And so... Some people made some funny tweets. We got a few here just to share with you. So the first one says, you know, wait, you mean Dick Pound isn't a porn star? And so <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, the next one says someone unironically named their kid Dick Pound. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last one says, you would never convince me that Dick Pound wasn't teased as a child. Because he was. You know he was. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, no, no matter what age or whether what time period he grew up in, you know, if you got a name like that, kids are going to tease you. They cursed him. I don't know why you would do that to that poor, that poor he's a man now, but I was about to say that poor child had to go around with that. Uh, but despite all of the roasting on Twitter, the story is actually very serious. Uh, like we say, Pang Shui has been missing. She's been out of public view for a while now, and this happened after she accused the former Chinese vice premier, Zhang Gaoli, of sexual assault. So it's a very serious story, but leave it to Twitter to make some fun out of it by making fun of Olympic Committee member Dick Pound um, and his name. So there you go. That's our quick hits. We, we've covered a lot. <laughs> we've got reindeer burglars, bowls of mashed potatoes, and we're going to leave it off here with Dick Pound. And so we're going to take our... Last break, and we're going to wrap up the show here. So stick with us, and we'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, 
Let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So as always, we're going to leave you with giving you a look forward as to what is upcoming uh, on the podcast. So first up, coming up on Tuesday, December 7th, it'll be another, another regular uh, inter- interview and episode from us. The time, this time we'll be discussing misinformation and how lies spread online. Our guest is Mr. Mike Webb. He's the Senior Vice President of Communications at the News Literacy Project. So we're going to be talking about misinformation. And so we know this is a big thing ever since, I don't know, President Obama was in office. Even before that, misinformation has become a big thing, especially on social media. So we're going to talk about how we even got here and how do lies even spread online. So make sure you stick around for that. It's going to be a very good, very interesting conversation uh, with Mike Webb. Again, he is the Senior Vice President of Communications at the News Literacy Project. And so... After his interview on Tuesday, December 7th, our next weekly roundup is going to be coming to you next Saturday, December 11th. And that's going to be weekly roundup number 25, the 25th one of the season. We're getting very close to the end here. Again, tune in for that. There'll be more news, funny quick hits, breaking news, you name it. We're going to talk about it and give you our opinions. And so, again, uh, Saturday, December 11th, weekly roundup number 25. Tuesday, December 7th, we're talking about misinformation and how lies spread online. Mike Webb from the News Literacy Project is going to be on the show joining us. And so before we go, we are in the season of giving, and we hope you are in a giving mood. You're giving us your time by listening, and we hope you can help us out by giving us some of your money, if you can spare it for us. And so Agent's going to let you know how you can help us out. Yeah, Devin, that's right. I want to say um, we even missed uh, Giving Tuesday. I think that was you know here recently or something. It like was. That. Yeah. Um, but yeah, listeners, giving is important. Um, you know, whenever you give, um, it means that you believe in the thing that you're giving to. And Devin and I, we always talk about what we're trying to do here with the Black Agenda podcast in the sense that it's not just about, you know, having these great conversations it's not just about talking about the news, but it's about building something that will eventually lead towards action in the communities that we're talking about. Um, you know, it's about legis- you know, legislation and lobbying, advocacy, community engagement. And we can't get to that level to enact those, you know, change factors until we get donations and different things of that nature. So that's where you come in. You all you got to do is just go to our website, blackagendapod.com. If you're listening to us in the Podbean app, all you got to do is click on the donate button from there. You'll see that there are different levels where you can become a monthly patron. As you give to us, we give you different gifts like shout outs, thank yous, being on the show. The list goes on and on and on. But we really need you to do that so that Devin and I can grow this into something awesome. But like I said, go to our website, blackgenderpod.com, click on the donate tab and start giving. The other thing, being that it is December now, we are at a new charity of the month. This is an interesting charity that we found. They're called Unicorn Riot. Uh, Unicorn Riot is a decentralized educational 501c3 nonprofit media organization of journalists. Unit Riot, or excuse me, Unicorn Riot engages and amplifies the stories of social and environmental struggles from the ground up. They seek to enrich the public by transforming the narrative with their accessible, non-commercial, independent content. Born from the internet in 2015, their commercial-free platform operates non-hierarchical, independent of corporate or government control. They span across multiple U.S. cities, including Boston, Denver, Minneapolis, and Philadelphia, as well as South Africa. So cool uh, organization there trying to help to advocate and promote for some interesting things there. So like I said, the name of that organization is Unicorn Riot. So go check them out. That's right. Go check them out. Make sure you give to them, give to us. We can all use the help here during the season of giving. And so to wrap up, we also wanted to let you know, you can like share and follow us on social media. 
You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our handle is at Black Agenda Pod. And again, our handle is at Black Agenda Pod. And if you want to keep up with us after, you know, outside of the show and we're not recording episodes, that's the best way to reach us is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Black Agenda Pod. Um, you can also find us on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel. Got about 50 or so videos on there. All great conversations featuring great guests who come on the show and talk with us. So make sure you check that out. Just search the Black Agenda podcast on YouTube and make sure you subscribe to our channel. And so, again, for me and Adrian, we appreciate you giving us your time and staying with us. Uh, this has been a great episode and we'll be back with you Saturday, December 11th for weekly roundup number 25. And again, our next episode is regular episode is coming out on Tuesday, December 7th, talking about misinformation and how lies spread online. So make sure you tune in for that. And so until uh, Tuesday, December 7th and uh, our interview with Mr. Mike Webb, Senior Vice President of Communications at the News Literacy Project. Until then, we'll catch you next time.